You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Twelve minutes past eight and we'll go straight away to our southern editor, Pascal Sheehy. Pascal, what can you tell us about this discovery of two bodies near Mitchellstown? Well, Mary, you described it as grim and it is all of that. Uh, the Gardaí were called overnight uh, to a farmhouse close to uh, Mitchellstown in North County Cork uh, after a family member became concerned uh, that one of her relations hadn't returned home. When Gardy went to the farmhouse, they discovered one body, first of all, uh, near a, 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 an open ground uh, close to a shed, uh, and then a search of the area revealed a second body, uh, I believe, in a shed close by uh, some time later. So the area was sealed off uh, overnight. The two bodies remain at the scene. Uh, and in the meantime, the Gardaí have issued an alert uh, for a red Toyota Corolla van with a Wicklow registration 03WW1556. Uh, now, this morning, uh, Garda Forensics will conduct an, uh, an investigation of the scene or an examination of the scene. The assistant state pathologist, Dr. Margot Bolster, is expected uh, to visit the scene along with senior Garda as well. But at this stage, we know uh, that a double murder investigation has begun. Is there anything further known at this stage uh, about the, the, the two men, the two bodies that were discovered? Yeah, we believe at this stage that both uh, our brothers uh, are related to each other <clears throat> um, and, and that the, the, the land on which they were found uh, is, the farm, is the family farm. Uh, not much else is known outside of that at this stage. Uh, in relation to that red Toyota Corolla van 03WW1556, um, anybody who sees that red Toyota Corolla van is asked to dial 999 immediately uh, and not to not to approach uh, either the van or the driver of the van to contact 999 immediately. Children who attend special classes in mainstream schools are returning to their classrooms today. It's part of the phased reopening of education that began with the reopening of special schools last week. Children who attend school as part of regular classes but with the support of a special needs assistant are not part of today's group and are currently not set to return to school early. We're joined now by our South East correspondent, Connor Kane, who's in St. Canis' Primary School in Kilkenny City, which has classes returning today. Connor, what's the mood like there today? Well, the mood, Gavin, is one of uh, joy, excitement, anticipation and relief. And normally there would be over 600 pupils returning to school at St. Canis's, which is the largest primary school in County Kilkenny. But today there will be about 18 children returning and they're all members of three special classes at St. Canis's school. So the school principal, teachers and special needs assistants have all been returning and there's a great mood of excitement and hope as they return today and hopefully that it's a bright day here in Kilkenny and hopefully that's a symbol of brighter days to come for everybody in the school community but I've been speaking to Aoife Casey a teacher at the school and she said it's a big day for everybody at St. Canis's. Really big day we're looking forward to greeting all the children and seeing the other staff members as well. So what's it going to be like today when you see them all again and they're all back in the classroom? I think they might get a bit of a shock now seeing us again but uh, um, I'd say it'll wear off pretty quick they'll get back in back to normality and it'll be running like clockwork. 
as usual. And hopefully a lot more back ne- in the next few weeks back into the school itself. Yeah, well, hopefully this all goes well and we'll all stick to our our routines and we'll be we'll have everyone back to normal soon enough. It'll be great. For the teachers as well, has it been difficult? As you said, you're trying to communicate by iPad and online. What's it like compared to being in class? Well, it's a, it's a lot trickier because you can't get the feedback straight away. You're correcting as well as trying to set new work. So while you're teaching, then in the evening time you're getting more work to correct. So it's definitely a lot more time consuming and you don't feel you're getting as much done. So there's a huge pressure there to try to keep the kids on track as well as keeping them engaged and, you know, reinforcing what work we're doing. So it, it is tricky and it's very time consuming at the time being. So being in school would be a lot easier. We'd all prefer to be there. But the way things were, we just couldn't. And Gavin, I also spoke to a delighted school principal, Maria Comerford, and she is hoping that things will return to some sort of normality in terms of school life anyway for the children once they return to the class. It's just over two months since they broke up for their Christmas holidays, so we're going to be absolutely delighted to see them. It's a beautiful sunny day here today, blue skies, everything bright. We're all ready. We spent last week preparing for the children coming back to school, so we couldn't be happier. And you've been in touch with them over the last few weeks uh, online but with the parents and the children. What's it been like for them? It has been difficult. It hasn't been as quite as difficult, I'd say, as the last lockdown because we've been better set up and there's been far more interaction between school and home. But from a parent's point of view, it has been stressful. From the children's point of view, they've been a bit isolated. And from the teacher's point of view, it is just so different from their normal way of life, everyday way of teaching. But um, no, it has gone very well. And any time I've seen the children on Google Meets or on their iPads or tuning in with the teachers, they've all been very happy but no doubt they'll be even happier to be back in school here today. Will it be difficult for them to catch up or or given all that work they will be already caught up do you think? Well we're talking today I suppose the children who are coming back today are from the special classes and they're specifically for ASD so social interaction would be a big deal for these children so I think that that's going to be one thing but I think once they come back and meet their friends again that they're going to be extremely happy and I think also through the structures that we've had in place they have managed to see each other unfortunately some children are a little bit shy so they haven't turned on their cameras and they mightn't have seen the other children but it will be a big deal to be coming back but I think once we get back inside the gates inside the inside the school building that life will go on pretty much as normal now they won't see their mainstream companions today they won't be back hopefully we'll be looking at them coming back next week but we will have about 18 children in today and we're absolutely delighted that they'll be here and we're hoping it'll pave the way for the rest of the children to come back because normally we'd have over 600 children in the school. That's Maria Comerford, Principal at St. Canisys in Kilkenny, ending that report by Conor Kane. And news just in now, and it looks like very big news in the Irish media industry. Bauer Media Audio is to buy the Communicorp Group, which includes the radio stations Today FM and News Talk, all subject to approval by the regulator. Our business editor, Will Goodbody, has more. Will tell us what's happening and its significance. Yeah, very significant this morning, Anya. Uh, we just received this statement from uh, Bayer Media and from Communicore saying that uh, an agreement has been struck to uh, allow uh, Bauer to buy Communicore, as you say, subject to regulatory approval. So uh, this will see Bauer Media uh, enter the Republic of Ireland uh, and extend its audio businesses to eight countries. So it's a European-wide, uh, 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 large commercial radio uh, and media uh, uh, company. And it describes itself as, as 
Europe's leading commercial radio operator with more than 55 uh, million weekly uh, listeners. Uh, of course, uh, Communicore is very well known here in Ireland, uh, as you say, holding that large portfolio of stations, uh, which includes Today FM, News Talk, uh, Spin 103, 8 and 98 FM in Dublin, as well as Spin Southwest in Limerick. And it's also moved very strongly into the digital space in recent years, developing the off the ball uh, sport brand, uh, as well as the digital audio exchange, Audio, audio X1 and and the uh, the listening platform and app Go Loud, uh, and uh, t- together it has a weekly audience of more than 1.75 million. Uh, so really quite a significant change uh, in the Irish media landscape as a result of this acquisition. All right, uh, Will. Thank you very much indeed for that. That's our business editor, Will Goodbody, with that breaking news. A massive haul of cocaine with a street value running to billions has been seized by customs authorities in Germany and Belgium. The drugs were destined for the Netherlands. German officials discovered 16 tonnes in five shipping containers that had arrived in the port of Hamburg from Paraguay earlier this month. Seven tonnes of cocaine was seized at the Belgian port of Antwerp. We're joined by Michael O'Sullivan, who's director of the Maritime Analysis and Cooperation Centre. That's the centre that coordinates anti-drug smuggling measures across European countries. And Michael is also a former Assistant Commissioner of Angardishi Econa. Michael, good to talk to you again. Uh, good morning, Mary. Uh, can you hear me all I, right? I can hear you loud and clear, and, and hopefully you're hearing us as well. This, this, Many people will have seen the pictures last night of, of this cocaine, some of it concealed in tins, uh, supposedly uh, importing putty. Uh, but it's, it's drug smuggling on an industrial scale. Can you tell us the likely story of this cocaine from its origins in, in Paraguay through to what was to be its destination in the Netherlands? Yeah, okay. Um, it's a little hard to hear you, but basically, this is a massive seizure. You know, if you if you want to put a, a street value on this, it could be, you know, anything between 1.5 billion to close to 3 billion. And it, it's, it is, as you say, on an industrial scale, the, the highest level of drug importation is by containerized traffic. Um, so what happens here is the organized crime group working in South America uh, gets its ducks lined up effectively and manages to get the drugs onto the transport, onto the containers, and uh, lines up people in the various ports to import the drugs under the radar. Now, it's a very challenging thing to do. Very often, the organized crime groups get people to the ports to intimidate dockers and uh, the, the various freight handlers mm. with a view to getting the um, the containers in safely. And uh, w- when they manage that, the profits are absolutely massive. However, when law enforcement get there first, they suffer huge, huge losses. However, the way it's structured is that the people in South America don't lose any money. This stuff is paid for. This stuff is, is, is paid for well in advance. And the people in Europe take all the risk. So they take the risk for the uh, shipment and and for the actual physical importation. Now this is this is a, a huge haul as you say, but these these ports, places like Hamburg, places like Rotterdam, uh, so many containers coming through minute by minute. So uh, really the the people who sent these shipments, I mean they they were unlucky in this case. How much is getting through? It, it's impossible to say how much is getting through. We can say how much is seized. 
102 tons of cocaine seized between ourselves in, in, in Mayock uh, and other law enforcement agencies last year. So that's 102 tons, massive, massive mm. seizure. When you look at uh, seizures, when you look at the, when you look at Rotterdam port, um, nine containers are offloaded every minute in Rotterdam. So between Rotterdam and Antwerp, um, last year you could have had 40 tonnes, Antwerp maybe 50 to 60 tonnes. Um, they were getting more successful at intercepting them in Rotterdam, so the organised crime groups moved into um, Antwerp. Mm. And now these, these containers, it's sort of a new development, have been, were sent into Hamburg. You know, they're going further up the line. Organised crime groups are constantly testing and testing the defences of law enforcement looking for weak links, constantly trying to find an easy way in. And once they do, do that, they, 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 they flood they the market and, and, and flood the system. Michael, is the pandemic helping or is it hindering the, the smuggling of drugs? We have found since March the pandemic has resulted in an increase. Um, I think the organised crime groups are operating on the principle never waste a good crisis. So what they're doing is um, they're sending in as many shipments as possible. In the very recent past, uh, working with the Spanish, we seized four vessels in 48 hours, which is unheard of. Um, last year, vessels, I think we intercepted 23 vessels. And this year alone, four or five vessels, and we've got a, we intercepted a, a plane as well. So it, it is all about market forces. There's a massive demand in Europe. Um, the, the market, I would estimate, is 13 billion in Europe for cocaine alone. So huge production in South America. They need to get it to Europe, to the markets of Europe to make the money. And, and they will use any means possible. And, and um, they're quite ruthless in what they do. Michael, thank you very much. Michael O'Sullivan there, Director of the Maritime Analysis and Operations Centre. Now, the Association of Catholic Priests says that any move to reopen churches for Easter would be premature and potentially detrimental. The association, which represents 1,000, around 1,000 priests, made its comments after Catholic church leaders held a virtual meeting with the Taoiseach at which they said they wished to see people gather safely in churches over the Easter period in April. Father Tim Hazelwood of the association joins us now. Um, Father Tim, first of all, why are you against the, the reopening of churches? in a safe way to allow people who, who want to, to gather for their respective services? Good morning, Audrey. Uh, I suppose um, most, a lot of our members are working priests in parishes and for the last few months, I suppose, in the past year, we've seen the effects of COVID. Uh, members of our parishes have contracted disease, members of our parishes have died and I suppose we're listening to the science uh, we, and we've seen what happened at Christmas when uh, openings did happen. And we are told that when people gather indoors, uh, that's the danger time. And now we have two new variants. So we just feel that it's not wise at the moment, that caution is, is the wisest thing to do. Do you think the archbishops who met with the Taoiseach weren't wise to, to make that call then? Well, I suppose they, they based their decision on some facts and maybe 
there being there are people who are pushing for this to happen, and um, and we have just have a different opinion. That's all. That's um, and we felt it was important that 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 was heard as well. And I know that you're based in in Calais, outside Yall in County Cork. That's How right. do your parishioners feel about this? Well, I think. From the feedback that I've got, people are, are happy enough. We've had some just last week in, in, in the parish. A 63-year-old man, a brother of one of our priests, died as a result of, of COVID, a young man. And uh, there was another man, and not an old man, who has died from COVID. So we're very much aware of uh, the dangers. I'll, I'll give you an example. That at Christmas time, uh, we decided as a pastoral council not to open for Christmas Masses. Instead, we had... Uh, people who come to the church on Christmas Eve receive Holy Communion, but leave straight away. Just uh, two weeks ago, uh, weeks after Christmas, I met uh, a woman from the parish, uh, and she was out walking. I was driving, I stopped, and she just said to me, do you remember when we last time we met, and it was Christmas Eve? She said, I had COVID, and all my family, and I would have, she said, I would have forced them to go to Mass. Um, like, it's very real and dangerous. We're indoors. A lot of our people who come are elderly, so we just think it's wise for another few months just to... Um, and we have services online, and people seem to be happy with that. And, and at Christmas time, where they did open, many didn't come. And you say, uh, you know, many of your congregation are older, but, but many priests who are still working be, because of the, the drop in vocations and so yeah. on. Um, many of priests, many of the priests who are still working are older as well, and, and they're very vulnerable, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And throughout all this, priests have kept uh, to their jobs. You know, we've been uh, available and we've been asked to, like we've, we've, we have celebrated the funeral masses and we have people are sick and we are asked to go to anoint. We do that. We have to be careful. We've had some priests in our, in the diocese I belong to have got COVID at the moment. In Dublin, there's a priest in his early 60s fighting for his life. So we have to take that into consideration as well. And there are some with health issues. So we just think that... And this, these new variants, from what we're told, we don't have you know, the exact science on how, how uh, virulent they are. So we think just, just that caution is the best thing to look after people's health at the moment is the... And that involves a little bit of sacrifice. And, you know, I think that's part of our faith, that we're willing, for the sake of the common good, uh, to do something like that. Yeah, but it, it's very hard, isn't it? And particularly, it's very hard for so, so many people at the moment. And um, for those for whom their faith is so important, Easter in particular is the, yes. is the most important time of the year for them. And it's, yes. it's not the same gathering around a laptop in the sitting room to, to join online. No, it's not. And people, are, I know people miss it uh, an awful lot. But I'm amazed that like, the goodness of people as well, you know, people are aware and like it's when you see the suffering and the loss that then people know the reason. And I think, um, I think that's what we just have to remind people of. You know that we're doing it to keep people safe, to keep people well. And once it's over, I think we'll be very glad. You know, um, and we've had funerals and we've had terrible occasions. It's very sad for people. And um, but and there has been tremendous support among the community as well, among the parish. And all the parishes, I think, you know, where people, in their own way, try to support people and, and help them through it. So 
And we just if we keep doing it for another bit, I think it's so another important. bit exactly because the vaccine is is here and it's being rolled it's out back. to those older yeah. people. So so fingers crossed. Look, thank you very much for joining us this morning, Father Tim Hazelwood from the Association of Catholic Priests. Unionist parties will come together today to start a legal challenge against the Northern Ireland Protocol. The Protocol is the part of the Brexit deal which prevents a hard border between North and South. The parties led by the DUP say it should be scrapped. Our Northern editor Tommy Gorman is on the line. Tommy, why is this happening now? Well, the illegal challenge is actually being fronted by Jim Allister of the traditional unionist voice. Uh, the DUP and, and the Ulster unionists joined with him, but he was the one who started the legal challenge. Must be said, he was always against uh, uh, the uh, idea of power sharing with Sinn Féin. That's why he left the DUP. So in some respects, he has common qualities with the DUP and the Ulster unionists, but very big divisions as well. Also worth noting today, Rachel, that there will be a debate in the House of Commons after its return, uh, after it returns from its break. Uh, that debate will be about scrapping the protocol. It's follow, it follows the DUP getting 100,000 plus signatures on a petition that trigger their right to have a debate. But I think it's very important to point out that essentially what the DUP and the other parties and unionists in general are looking to do here is to challenge the British government and the British government's decision uh, to sign the withdrawal agreement complete with the Northern Ireland Protocol. So they're actually challenging the, their own government. It took a long, long time for this protocol to come together. So what do the DUP and the others, what do they want to see in its place? Well, essentially what they're against are the measures that flow from the Northern Ireland Protocol that creates a border down the Irish Sea. This was the alternative put in place to a hard border on the island of Ireland. So they want to get rid of the measures. To say they don't just want the Northern, the Northern Ireland Protocol modified, they want it scrapped. So essentially, they want the British government to say, no, we're not prepared to live with the agreement we signed up to. There's an element uh, to the uh, agreement that's unacceptable uh, to unionists in Northern Ireland. And of course, that has huge implications for Boris Johnson in his relationships with the European Union. It's also worth pointing out, Rachel, that while unionists have this position, they're actually in a minority position in the Northern Ireland Assembly. But the practical implications of it on a day-to-day -day is that it will make relations in the Assembly extremely difficult. And one of the measures they're proposing as part of a five-point plan of opposition, this is by the DUP, uh, to the Northern Ireland Protocol, is they're looking to suspend some North-South activities. So essentially what you're seeing here is a campaign that will cause difficulties for the British government, uh, that will have difficulties for the functioning of the power-sharing Assembly, uh, and that in some respects, really what you're seeing is a rerun of the Brexit debate and a recognition that Brexit and the Good Friday Agreement sit very, very uncomfortably. That is the fundamental issue that they are highlighting. We know how the government in Dublin is likely to react to this, but how is the Westminster government likely to respond? Well, that's 
a really fascinating question because it gets to the nub of the issue. Now, Michael Gove was the person who was the interface with the European Union, and he was looking to find ways of softening and modifying and dealing with some of what in many respects are absurd uh, implications uh, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Some of the restrictions that flow from it uh, they just don't make practical sense. So Gove was looking for compromise and modifications, but he has been replaced by David Frost, who led uh, the uh, British government negotiations in Brexit. And it will be really interesting to see how Boris Johnson and David Frost react to this unionist pressure. David Frost takes over from Michael Gove, interfacing with the European Union and with Maros Sefcovic on the 1st of March. And that's the political space to watch, to see where this is going next. But at the end of the day, uh, this is a very, very fundamental point. In some respects, what we are seeing here is the first round in the debate about the long-term future of Northern Ireland. Uh, because in many respects, what Brexit has triggered is the argument about is there going to be a united Ireland down the road. That's the elephant that's on the table and that's the elephant that has been created by Brexit. Tommy, thanks indeed for that. Our Northern Editor, Tommy Gorman. We are going to stay with that story from California. Tiger Woods undergoing surgery late last night for multiple leg injuries that he'd suffered in a car crash in Los Angeles. Uh, the LA County Sheriff's Department saying it responded to a single vehicle rollover accident. Uh, the vehicle sustained major damage. The 15 times golf major champion, he's 45 now, he had to be extricated from the wreckage by firefighters and paramedics. For more, I'm joined by Steve Futterman, CBS correspondent in California. What can you tell us, Steve, about what happened? It was 7 a.m. in the morning. Yes, and he was going, we believe, at a quite a fast rate of speed, uh, going past the speed limit. This is a, a dangerous stretch of this road. It's known as a, a very dangerous stretch. There have been many accidents there before. The authorities, law enforcement officials are aware of it, and there have been many accidents. Tiger Woods simply lost control. We, we talked to some people who regularly drive on this patch of road, and they say even for them, if they're driving too fast or they lose some concentration, it can be a bit risky. He he crossed the road. Fortunately for him, there was no oncoming traffic, so he was able to avoid that obstacle. Then his car rolled over, the SUV rolled over several times, finally off the road into a field, and it was just a mess. The front of the vehicle totally destroyed, and as you heard earlier, he had to be extricated using the authorities used a, a pry bar and an axe to get him out. No evidence, we're told, from the Sheriff's Department of impairment. He was taken to hospital. He has undergone surgery. Uh, what is the update now on his injuries? Well, the injuries are quite extensive. Uh, it's not that encouraging, except the, the fact is these are not life-threatening. They could be uh, golf-threatening, but not life-threatening. He suffered multiple fractures in his right leg, fractures to the tibia, to the fibula, both upper and lower. There are injuries to the ankle, to the foot. There's even some trauma to the muscle and the soft tissue. So he has undergone very extensive surgery. It's very possible there will have to be additional surgeries in the days and weeks ahead. 
because uh, it's a very complicated injury he has right now throughout his entire leg. He's resting comfortably. We're led to believe that the surgery was uh, successful, although in the statement they did not give the usual prognosis uh, uh, is encouraging. They, they left that out. They didn't say it was encouraging. They didn't say it's not encouraging, but he is resting comfortably, we're told, at the hospital right now. It's going to be some time. And again, uh, can he ever play competitive golf again? I think it's way too early to talk about it, but it's certainly something that's going to have to come up and be discussed. Certainly this year's Masters is off. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, I think he'll be very lucky if he's walking regularly by April when the Masters uh, takes place. Ironically, just three days ago, he was asked on the national TV telecast on CBS at the LA Open, the Genesis Invitational, whether he was going to be at uh, Augusta in seven weeks. And he said, uh, I hope so, with a laugh. But obviously, that's out of the question right now. Of course, because he'd already had a further back surgery, hadn't he? I think it was his fifth Yes. And this is something else that obviously the doctors are focusing on the leg. When you're in an accident like this, this can trigger other back problems as well. So it could be more than the leg that Tiger Woods is dealing with. Uh, when you're in an, uh, an accident like this where you're rolling over several times where the impact of the, of the crash itself uh, can impact the back, uh, you can have back problems as well resulting from this. News of a shooting, a teenager being shot in Dublin last night. Our crime correspondent has more. Paul, what happened? It happened on Eugene Street in Dublin's south inner city at around 5 to 11 last night, Anya. It appears that a 17-year-old boy was getting into a taxi when a number of gunmen approached and fired five or six shots at him. He tried to get out of the taxi, but he was hit a number of times in the upper body, including the neck area. He was treated by paramedics at the scene, stabilised and taken to nearby St. James's Hospital, where he underwent surgery overnight. Now, the scene is currently preserved. A technical examination will be carried out by the Garda Forensic and Technical Bureau later today. The Garda at Kevin Street uh, have launched a criminal investigation. They've issued an appeal this morning to anyone who was in the Eugene Street or Dublin 8 area last night between half 10 and 11pm. Anyone with footage of the incident, including dash cam, mobile phone footage, uh, they've asked these people to contact them at Kevin Street. They've also spoken to a number of people who were at or nearby the scene, specifically the taxi driver who is understandably uh, quite shaken but otherwise unhurt. And do Gardaí have any particular line of inquiry uh, in this investigation, Paul? Yeah, they're still trying to establish a motive. They have a lot of questions, obviously. I mean, what was a 17-year-old boy doing out at 11 o'clock last night in the middle of a pandemic? Um, They're trying to establish a motive. It appears to have been a targeted attack. One line of inquiry is that it could be drugs-related. I mean, it's not just in in the Dublin 8 area, but it's in Blanchardstown, it's in Tallaght, it's all over Dublin and indeed all over the country, where increasing numbers of children are being used uh, by drug dealers. It's a long-standing method used by older criminals uh, who use children uh, in criminality specifically to deliver or to hold drugs for them. Uh, there are fewer criminal consequences for the children due to their age and they're, they're more and more children are being groomed into organised crime. Uh, the Gardaí say they're treating this case, however, as a case of, uh, as a case of attempted murder. This weekend, last year, the first COVID-19 case was reported in the state A year that has changed everything. Loved ones lost, society transformed and life in lockdowns. Kian McCormack looks back at the pandemic which has shadowed everything we've done over the last 12 months. So, evening everybody and thank you all for coming in. February 29th, 2020. uh, We're holding this press briefing uh, to confirm that Ireland has, has had its 
first case diagnosed of COVID-19. March 11th saw the first fatality. The first COVID-19 related death has been confirmed in Ireland on the day the World Health Organization declared the outbreak of the coronavirus a pandemic. The following day, the then Taoiseach Leo Varadkar announced the first restrictions from Washington. Acting together as one nation, we can save many lives. Lost time in school or college will be recovered and in time our lives will go back to normal. Despite assurances, there was panic buying. But I mean, I went into the into a couple of big supermarkets yesterday just after the announcement was made by the Taoiseach, Leo yeah. Varadkar. And the sense of fear was palpable in every single aisle. People were talking on their mobile phones, they were talking to their loved ones, going, what am I going to get? There's no pasta, there's no tinned tomatoes. From the outset, there was a race to find the vaccine. And in May, this was the prediction from scientists. The 12 to 18 month forecast is still the best guess The end of June saw Ireland enter phase three of the government's easing of COVID-19 restrictions. We've been locked up for one to two months. The children are going mental. These were the views of people in La Hinch as they could travel again and as cafes, restaurants, hotels, beauty salons and hairdressers opened. We're going to restrict our foreign travel until next year. The restaurants and cafes I know are all very excited to reopen. They've obviously been one of the hardest hit because it's just been a complete cessation of trading. August saw outbreaks in meat factories and county lockdowns. By October, the second COVID-19 wave was well rooted and government rejected the National Public Emergency Team's recommendation to place the entire country under Level 5 restrictions. Well, we heard them out, uh, sat down with them today as ministers for more than two hours, allowed them to make their case, had a cabinet meeting, considered it very carefully, and we decided not to accept the, vi- the advice at this time. But later in October, government did a U-turn. Ireland moved to Level 5 restrictions. And on November 27th, it was announced restrictions would be relaxed in a phased basis for Christmas. The government and I are satisfied that this combination of new arrangements strikes a safe balance between maintaining the pressure on the disease and creating space for families, friends and loved ones to be together this Christmas. After Christmas comes the new year. The days will start to lengthen again and we can face into 2021 with renewed hope. There was mixed reaction from people. Okay, we pay the price in January, we'll pay the price, but give it a try. I think people should just stay local. Like, um, I think once you start mixing, it's going to be a problem. As vaccinations began in Northern Ireland, hope was on the horizon. Then, days before Christmas, the Taoiseach delivered this message. From Christmas Eve until the 12th of January 2021, the government has agreed to return to level five of the plan for living with COVID with a number of specific adjustments. The first vaccine in Ireland was administered on December 30th, but January and February saw a health system overburdened and escalating numbers of infections and deaths. The virus is absolutely rampant now in the community. We know that for a fact. Uh, Everybody is at extreme high risk now of contracting the virus. As lockdown restrictions tightened, family funerals were impacted. We were all sitting there, all ten of us with our masks on, 
even the sandwiches that we made for the house for the 10 of us and having a cup of tea, like we all had to go into separate rooms to eat them. So so can you grieve I, together? I don't think so. I don't think we have yet. We have been isolated from each other in grief, you know, where we should be coming together. Now a year out, government hopes mass vaccinations offer a return to normality, but reaching that normality won't happen immediately. The vaccination programme will completely change the landscape and transform the options available to us as a society for reopening and renewing our country. We will get through this. We just need to stay focused and get through these next few months safely together. And that's Taoiseach Micheál Martin ending that look back at the past 12 months by Kean McCormack. Thousands of people have pledged to squeeze in a read today for Ireland's first National Reading Day, which has been organised by Libraries Ireland as part of the Keep Well campaign. Ireland's Read Day is about encouraging all of us, young and old, to get stuck into a book and it might even help take our minds away from the pandemic. So far, people all over the country have pledged more than half a million minutes of reading time today, Ailish Sheehy reports. My name is Mae Volzer, I'm 10 years old and I'm from County Clare. For Ireland Reads, I have pledged two hours and in those two hours I'm going to read a book called The Eye of the North by Sinead O'Hart. Here are a few lines from the book. For as long as she could remember, Emmeline Widget had been sure her parents were trying to kill her. Why else, she reasoned, would they choose to live in a creaky old house where if she wasn't dodging random bits of collapsing masonry or avoiding the trick steps on the stairs, she had to be constantly on guard for booby-trapped floorboards or doors that liked to boom closed entirely by themselves. Maeve and her family are among thousands of people around the country who have made a pledge to dedicate some of their time today to reading. Her brother Kean, who is 13, will read for two hours today, a pastime he likes for many reasons. I enjoy reading because I can kind of like recreate the story in my mind. It's just so much fun. It passes the time. There's so much good about it. I once read a book called George's Secret Key to the Universe and it was written by Stephen Hawking and you learned about space in the story and you learn while you're reading. Uh, If you don't read, I think you should definitely give it a go. You should try find a book which um, you enjoy. I'm Stuart Hamilton and I'm the head of libraries development at the local government management agency. Ireland Reads is taking place today and it's the very first national reading day that Ireland's had. And uh, Libraries Ireland, along with the booksellers and the publishers and the writers across the country, are encouraging people to pledge some time to sit down and to read today. Basically to escape through a good book or a magazine or whatever you want really uh, and take yourself to a different place for a bit, which is something I think we all need at the moment. The Ireland Reads campaign was launched earlier this month by President Michael D. Higgins, who this week donated books from his personal collection to Ireland's Public Library Service to coincide with today's reading event. There's been an overwhelming response from people all over the country to take the pledge to read today. And the good news is it's not too late to sign up. 
Over the last few weeks, we've been putting out a big social media campaign, just encouraging people to visit the islandreads.ie website where they can sign up and take this pledge. And increasingly, as the month's gone on, the libraries around the country, some bookshops have been holding events online, and that's been growing in intensity. So it's all building up to the activities today. Now, if you go to islandreads.ie, you can still pledge. Whilst thousands of people have pledged up through the website, some of those are representing school classes and even schools. So we think there's a multiplier in the number of people who have actually promised to set aside time to read. Back in Clare in the Ozer household, Keen and Maeve's mother, Cleana, explains why they have taken the pledge. Now, especially in lockdown, we're running around like headless chickens. The children have got homeschooling. We've got our jobs. We're on the computers all day long. It kind of gave us the excuse, almost like a license to sit down and take out a book after a long day. Cleana's husband, Mike, who is a native of Switzerland, is also getting involved. The kids are going to read at least four hours. My wife will probably read for an hour and a half and... For my part, I would say one hour. I try and and keep it up, all the reading, especially with English books. I try to improve my English and I think it's important to to read in, in English, for me especially. Two books written by Irish author Liz Nugent were among 20 of the most borrowed library books last year. Liz recalls the influence of books on her early life. I spent uh, a lot of time in hospital when I was a a child. I was one of those sick kids. We didn't have Playstations or iPads or anything like that when when I was a child back in the dark ages. So uh, books were our only form of escape. And I just learned a love of reading and stories. Like in my mind, I could be a ballerina. Whereas in fact, I was in a hospital with my leg in a plaster cast. (laughs) So I couldn't ever be a ballerina. But in your head, you can go anywhere and you can be anything and you can live on the moon or you you can be all those things that you can't be in real life. And it certainly led her to be a, a pretty uh, successful author, writer Liz Nugent there, ending Elise Sheehy's report. Squeeze in a read today. Well, Ireland's Eurovision entry got its first play this morning on 2FM. It's called Maps by singer-songwriter Leslie Roy. Well, that makes me want to get out of my chair here. Here to tell us more about it is the presenter of Saturday Sounds and Eurovision coverage here on RT Radio 1, Neil Doherty. Good morning. Morning, Mary. How are you? Uh, That's my first listen to it. You've had a chance to listen a couple of times. What's the verdict? You know, the second I heard the song, I liked it. You've heard the first few bars of it there and you're into it. Um, It has a lovely orchestral sound at the start. It's a strong pop song. It's optimistic. I think there's a European DJ feeling in there. And the message is all about finding your own way in life and love. So I'm, I'm impressed. I'm happy. And it's the kind of song that I want to hear again, which is a good sign. Always a good sign indeed. Leslie Roy, of course, knocked back last year with the pandemic. No Eurovision. What happens this year for her now? 
So the plan is this year that the Eurovision will go ahead in some guise. They've said that it won't be a normal event, and by they mean what they mean by that is that there won't be a big audience there. But the plan is that every participant will go to Rotterdam, where the 65th Eurovision will take place this year, and they'll get to perform live on stage in Rotterdam for Europe, and there'll be a normal voting process. The backup plan is that if, for whatever reason, a country can't travel over to Rotterdam, that they'll have pre-recorded a live recording of the song, and that'll be played out. But either way, the competition is going to go ahead in some guise this year. So Rotterdam in May, and does Leslie have to enter an elimination phase now, or is every entrant going to be heard? No, so we are in semi-final one. So that's our first stumbling block. We have to get out of semi-final one. And I've been looking at the other acts who are confirmed so far for semi-final one. Uh, one of the acts that is getting a bit of traction already is Norway. Uh, this is a fella called Tix, who's doing a song called Fallen Angel. This is going to be one of the songs that people talk about this year because this fella Tix stands on stage dressed all in white and has huge white angel wings behind him. And he's chained to four devils. So that's the kind of one of the novelty acts that's emerging this year. We have to get, we have to beat him to get through. And there's a few good pop songs in semi-final one as well. So there's a little bit of competition there for us. Because Eurovision, it's more than a song contest. It's a it's a spectacle, isn't it? So, um, you know, how are we going to present, I wonder? Yeah, that's that's the question. So at nine o'clock this morning, they're going to release a video of Leslie Roy singing the song. Now, this video is filmed in the Wicklow Mountains, I believe. So it may not offer many hints about how we're going to stage it. But that is one of the one of the things. It's no longer just a song contest. It's a huge vi visual spectacle. So you've got to do something that'll catch people's eyes as well on the night. And it's that kind of thing that you have sort of you've only got one chance to do it. People will probably see this for the first time live on stage in May. So you've got to grab their attention. So, yes, yeah, staging will be yeah. important. What's winning Eurovision these days? You mentioned the Norwegian entry and the, the spectacle around that. Any other entries catching your ear? Um, th this year so far, it's still early days. Only about half the songs have been put out there. There's a beautiful French song that's sort of got vibes of Edith Piaf, which is beautiful. There's a Croatian pop song called TikTok, which is a kind of a nod to the social media app that went crazy during the lockdown. I was looking at the winners of the last six or seven years, and you know what? It's kind of sad ballad breakup songs that do well in Eurovision <laughs> over the course of the last decade. Now, Israel booked that trend in 20, uh, 2018 when they won. Remember that song, I'm Not Your Toy, You Stupid Boy? That was the kind of novelty song that won that, that year. But overall, it's the kind of sad breakup cry in the mirror songs that do well. All right, I'll be looking out for the sad ballad breakups. Neil Doherty, thank you very much for joining us. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.